I'm Angel Shuang, and this is Beth Bennett. You're listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, June 30th, 2020. Coming up next, we have an interview with Tyler Leeson, a vertebrate paleontologist with the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. Tyler Leeson will discuss the astonishing fossil record his team recently discovered right here in Colorado at the Corral Bluffs east of Colorado Springs. The Corral Bluffs fossil record was featured in the recent NOVA show titled Rise of the Mammals, and a detailed study was published last October in the journal Science. So the discovery at at Corral Bluffs is absolutely amazing. It's really because of where those fossils come from. And it's because they come from right after Earth's last mass extinction. Now, this is the the extinction that wiped out the dinosaurs. So in this interval of time, we move from the age of the reptiles or the age of the dinosaurs to the age of the mammals. So anytime there's a mass extinction, and there have been five mass extinctions in Earth's history, those are really important intervals of time, not only for understanding the causes of the mass extinction, but also what survived, how life survived, and sort of what we can learn from that going forward. All living mammals today descended from the survivors of the asteroid impact and the devastation that ensued. The extinction was so massive that finding fossils had been very challenging. This is what makes the Corral Bluffs fossil discovery so exciting. They have recently discovered hundreds of complete vertebrate and plant fossils from this critical time period. Tyler Leeson explains how this has been a black box for paleontologists. The problem with the last mass extinction is we had a lot of data leading up to the mass extinction. Right, so we the knew age. Yeah. the age of the dinosaurs, absolutely. And this is for a lot, a lot of the, the, these fossils came from where I grew up in southwestern North Dakota, from an area called the Hell Creek Formation. This is where you find Triceratops and the Tyrannosaurus rex. And we had a lot of data that suggested a very catastrophic extinction as a result of a giant asteroid that struck Earth just over 66 million years ago. But what we knew virtually nothing about is what happened next. How did life recover? What did that recovery look like? We obviously knew some life survived. Obviously, we're we're here talking today. So mammals survived. But we didn't really know how quickly life bounced back in terms of diversity, uh, in terms of body mass. We didn't know what what the plant life looked like and how the plants and the animals may have been co-evolving and changing and they them changing together with the climate. So this this was a, a sort of a black box for paleontologists. And a lot of paleontologists have gone to rocks of this age from right after the extinction of the dinosaurs to try to figure out the answers to these questions because it's such an important interval of time. How big are the mammals that survived? Tyler Leeson explains. The the mammals that survived were all very, very small. Um, The largest mammal that survived is about the size of a rat, a half a kilogram, so very, very small. Now, the largest animal that lived with the age of the dinosaurs, at the very end of the age of the dinosaurs, is about the size of a raccoon. So the mammals weren't that big. So very small animals 
small fossils, and not very many of them. But why do tiny mammals have an advantage in surviving this? I asked Tyler this question. The idea is, is that a lot of these things may have been living underground and may have been sort of buffered from that initial thermal pulse that was created when the asteroid struck Earth. Because the asteroid came in at a high angle, struck off the Yucatan Peninsula, basically pulled the, the atmosphere down to the surface of the globe, and it, it broiled the surface to about the temperature that you bake cookies, about 400 degrees Fahrenheit. So the entire globe, the entire globe. The entire globe is based is broiled. And we think that was one of the main kill mechanisms that killed a lot of things on on Earth. And so if you were out on the surface of the the Earth, not underground, not underwater, you essentially were broiled to death. Another thing is their diet. All the specialized mammals that ate were either purely plant eaters um, or meat eaters, uh, they, or or like eating like shelled animals like clams and, and snails things like that they go extinct. But the animals that have a broad diet, mammals included, they do much much better. So our earliest ancestors were small mammals with broad palates. Both were keys for survival. Now I wanted to understand what advantages other animals had. What kinds of reptiles were able to survive this? Yeah, so reptiles do, they do better, generally. I mean, of course, not all reptiles, because the big ones go extinct. The dinosaurs, the giant dinosaurs, they get wiped out. All the big things pretty much go extinct. But if you look at other reptiles, like turtles, uh, turtles do the best of any group of animal across this particular extinction interval. If you only looked at turtles, you wouldn't know there was a mass extinction. Other groups of reptiles, such as like crocodiles, they do really well as well. They, they do probably the second best after turtles. Uh, we, lose, uh, we lose some, but uh, many of those also, also survive. And reptiles have an advantage because they have a much slower metabolism. Okay. Right? We're all familiar with that. You, you, know, you only need to feed your snake once a week, once a month. Crocodiles, same sort of thing. Turtles can go months. Uh, without food or water, at least some of them can. And this is very advantageous, you can imagine, right, in the immediate aftermath of the mass extinction, where there was not only the thermal pulse, but the next thing that life had to contend with was that the Earth, you know, the asteroid struck Earth, and it sent up uh, the crust of the Earth into the atmosphere, and all of the, the dirt and silt, and more importantly, the aerosols hung out in the, on the, in the atmosphere, and they block the sunlight. Well, then you block the sunlight, you reduce photosynthesis, you reduce photosynthesis, you kill the plants, of course, then that's the chain reaction. You get rid of the plants, and then that's going to you know, wipe, wipe everything else that relies on plants out for the most part. And so if you're able to essentially shut down your body for months at a time, like a lot of reptiles are able to do, that turns out to be highly advantageous uh, at this interval of time. Do we know much about how mar- marine ecosystems survived this event? We do, yeah. Yeah, so the, the ocean record has a wonderful fossil record. And we, again, there, they, the, the kill mechanisms are probably a little bit different than on land. One of the ideas, a paper that just came out last year, was that, that uh, the oceans have basically turned to acid for a brief moment in time. And the uh, increase in acidity of the oceans then knocked out all of the forams and sort of the little, little sea creatures 
sort of the, the base of the ocean ecosystem. And then that had the chain reaction moving its way up. So then we lose ammonites, which are those coiled shells that were swimming through the, the water column. We lose all large uh, reptiles. So the things like mosasaurs and plesiosaurs, the, you know, the quote unquote Loch Ness monster goes extinct. So mass extinctions in the oceans as well. Now back to the Denver Basin and the Corral Bluffs. Yes, I still want to understand more about the history of the special area. The Denver Basin has been prospected for fossils for many, many years. So how could these fossils that tell such an important story about the life of mammals gone undetected for so long? People have been working and looking for fossils in Corral Bluffs since the, uh, the late 1800s, early 1900s. So the Smithsonian Institution in Washington, D.C., they were one of the first groups to send people out to look for fossils in this particular area. And they did find fossils at Corral Bluffs. They found dinosaurs at the bottom, and then they found some mammals towards the top, and they knew somewhere in there there was a mass extinction. But they didn't find a lot of fossils, and so they moved on to other areas. That's sort of the story uh, of Corral Bluffs. People would go there and find a few fossils, but then there's not a lot of exposure. There's, the whole area is only like 27 square kilometers. It's really, really small. And so people would basically go to greener pastures you know, and say like, oh, well, there's probably better fossils elsewhere. And so then you sort of fast forward to, I guess, 2015, 2016, um, I got a, was fortunate enough to get a job at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. Um, I'm really interested in this interval of time. And uh, I started talking with some colleagues at the museum of, you know, uh, who are better, more familiar with the Denver Basin than I was. And I wanted them to take me around all the different places where there was rocks exposed. And we went to Corral Bluffs. And you know, I spent a couple of days not walking around, not really finding any fossils. And I started thinking about my experiences in South Africa. And there they looked for a specific type of rock called a concretion. It's just a type of rock and it forms around an organic nucleus. And so I started thinking about that at Corral Bluffs. And as soon as I started looking for these concretions rather than for bone, which is sort of the way I'd been trained to find fossils, that blew the whole thing wide open. Going from concretion or from bone to concretions, you know, completely changed our ability to find fossils in this interval of time. It was just uh, amazing the way it happened. Uh, one of the first ones I picked up, I cracked it open, and I could see this uh, mammal, just, just an entire skull, just staring back at me. Um, it was uh, incredible. You know, in that moment, I had other volunteers with me. Uh, other collaborators, and I called them over, and we were sharing this moment of excitement. Then they had the search images, and as soon as they had that, they were able to go out, and each of them started picking up mammal skulls. And, you know, you have to, to remember that there hadn't been skulls, really, from this interval of uh, time found. So this was, this was truly, truly remarkable to be able to go from basically no skulls to, or a handful of skulls, to more than doubling the number of the skulls of mammals from this interval of time in a matter of an hour. So, That's an, yeah, it's an amazing story. And there they were hiding in plain sight if you only knew where to look. Mm-hmm. 
If you're just tuning in, we are speaking with Tyler Leeson, a vertebrate paleontologist whose team discovered the fossils at Corral Bluffs in Colorado. The Corral Bluffs fossils are on exhibit at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. The exhibit is titled, After the Asteroid Impact, Earth's Comeback Story. That must have been such a gratifying moment for everyone to finally find complete fossils for this time period. Well, Tyler Leeson has made many other remarkable fossil discoveries, and most of them are dinosaurs. It was his early work on dinosaurs that made him so fascinated with this question, what happened to them? He had a very unique childhood. So I was you know, very fortunate that I grew up in a very small town in southwestern North Dakota, a town of about 80 people. Sort of while it was in the middle of nowhere uh, in many respects, um, but it was it was right in the center of dinosaur country. It was located in the Badlands, the, the Hell Creek Badlands. And so some of my earliest childhood memories are walking around the Badlands with my uncle and cousins running around looking for arrowheads and other things and also finding dinosaurs. And so when I was in sixth grade, I got a job with professors who were coming out to look for fossils, to figure out what caused the extinction of the dinosaurs, because that was a really hot scientific topic in the, in the 90s. So I got a job when I was in sixth grade, basically <laughs> as a strong, a strong back. But by the time I was in eighth grade and a freshman, I was finding my own dinosaur skeletons on my uncle and grandfather's land. You know, by the time I was out of high school, I had certainly excavated probably 30 or 40 you know, different types of dinosaurs. One of the most intriguing things to me is that the asteroid impact, which was a local event off the coast of Mexico, resulted in such global catastrophe. And this cataclysmic event is captured in rock in the form of the KPG boundary, and it reveals many clues about the destruction. When you're out there in the Hill Creek Formation and there's that boundary of the asteroid impact. What does that boundary look like physically? And what are the markers for that boundary? It's so fascinating to me. Yeah, so that boundary is, is phenomenal, right? I mean, you can, there's over, over 400 of these boundaries found worldwide. You can literally go put your finger on it and it, it uh, demarcates the moment in time where you go from the age of the dinosaurs to the uh, age of the mammals. And I think that's really, really powerful. And it looks a little bit differently in, in, in different areas. But it, up in North Dakota, um, um, it's preserved in a, sort of like a swamp bed. So it's, it's a, a, you know, a coal, essentially. I think of like a really uh, poor a poorly defined coal, so it's a dark, dark layer, and then the actual KT boundary or KPG boundary is a is a white sort of a, a light colored layer that just runs right across the uh, this dark layer, and you can also see that elsewhere. So here in Colorado, we have some of the best KT boundary sections in the world. If you go to uh, the Raton Basin, just south of Trinidad or nor north of Raton, New Mexico this area has a fantastic boundary that you can see from the road, from, from the highway. And it's just amazing because it's just this swamp bed. So it's dark, dark black rock. And then there's this white layer that just cuts right across it. And when you look at that layer underneath the microscope, you can find a number of things that, that tells us it was a, a giant asteroid that struck Earth. Uh, one of the first things that we, you can look at and, and see if you measure the, uh, the elements of that layer is you'll see that that particular white layer is rich in iridium. Iridium, yeah. And 
Iridium is rare on Earth, but common in meteorites. And this is the first thing that that, uh, that tipped the uh, the Alvarez team, the Alvarez et al. team in 1980 off on that it was an asteroid that struck Earth. They were the team that proposed it was a, a meteorite that struck and caused the extinction of dinosaurs. An idea that was not that was met with a lot of skepticism in 1980, but is 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 widely accepted today. You, if you if you look at that the rock that same layer underneath a, a microscope, you'll see you can look at the quartz grains. So the little quartz grains, the, the crystals. And normally um, they just look they're sort of plain looking, but uh, in this particular layer, they're crisscross with big scratches these deformation uh, scratches. And the only place that you get those today are at the sites of nuclear uh, bomb testing sites, suggesting that, you know, there's a giant, you know, rather than a nuclear bomb, it was a giant uh, asteroid that, that struck Earth. So, but do you get those deformations in the crater site or can you also see that deformation in the crystals far away, like in Colorado? Uh, far away, absolutely. Because what happened is it, it, it struck Earth and it sent those crystals up into the atmosphere that then circulated the globe and then eventually came back down into places like Colorado and really all, all around the world. That was one heck of a plume, one heck a of a plume. Absolutely, one heck of a plume. And then I think maybe my favorite thing about the, the, uh, the boundary is that the last thing that you see in many places, including here in Colorado, are these little, these little things called spherules. And they basically look like I always say fossilized nerds, right? The candy, the fossilized yeah. nerds, these little, these little glass balls. What they represent is that the asteroid struck, um, it sent dirt, the, the crust into the atmosphere, and then that crust rained back down. And when it rained back down, it melted and it formed these little glass balls. So these little molten balls of, of death and destruction that rained down across the globe probably setting the globe on, on fire. So you have global wildfires at this interval of time. A really, really bad day for life. Really, really bad day of life. Okay, so let's do a what if question for you. If the same asteroid had hit planet Earth same day, but maybe we had delayed that by a little bit, a few hours so that the rotation of the Earth changed and we hit a different place on Earth, middle of the ocean. Could it have caused this much destruction? Could, would the plume have been a little bit gentler <laughs> to life on Earth? And could the dinosaurs have survived? Yeah, I think that is a fascinating question. You know, and scientists have studied this. There's been different papers published by groups out of uh, Japan and, and elsewhere that have modeled this. That, just like you said, if the asteroid had struck mere minutes to hours later with the rotation of the Earth, the asteroid would have struck in the ocean. By all accounts, you know, at least according to these different models, the, the extinction would not have been nearly as severe because it turns out where the asteroid struck and basically these uh, near shore, these carbonate platforms, sort of like the Great Barrier Reef of, uh, of, of Mexico of the day, 66 million years ago. Uh, the asteroid struck you know, in this shallow ocean, dissolving these reefs in sending everything up into the atmosphere. And these reefs have, this type of rock have a lot of aerosols. And the aerosols turn out to, we think, turn out to be one of the, the main killers because they hang out in the atmosphere for so long. They don't immediately come back down. And it's because they hung out in the atmosphere for so long, circulating the globe, blocking out the sunlight. That's why we think this extinction is global. 
and not just merely bad for North America. Because I think no matter what, North America would have been hit pretty hard um, right. um, if it had hit in the ocean. But it's a big question as to why was it global? And it turns out where it hit, um, dissolving these, these reefs um, was really, really important in, in, that, in the global nature of this mass extinction. So we have a winner. That was the absolute worst day for life on Earth, fire and brimstone. Oh, even worse. First broiling heat, then brimstone, then raining pellets causing mass fire, and finally an intense, long, dark winter. A total hellscape. But mercifully, a few rat-sized mammals survived, and so here we are. What were the biggest surprises from those fossil records? Well, that, that complete fossils of these small survivors exist, and also how quickly the animals and plants came back in numbers, diversity, and size. Tyler Leeson explains. So what we were able to do is bring together the timeline, that first million years, and then integrate in the, the, the changes in diversity and body size of, of mammals, the changes in diversity of the, the ecosystems and the plants, and then how all of that correlated with temperature. One of the other big things that was surprising for a lot of us was just how quickly life actually bounced back or rediversified. Because of course, the life that bounced back was very different than the life before it. But we were pretty surprised uh, that, that life was able to come back, rediversify so quickly that within 300,000 years, you have huge jump in diversity of mammals compared to, to the mass extinction. They were almost as diverse as before that mass extinction. At 300,000 years, we see a giant jump in body size of mammals that's correlated with a increase in diversity of plants. So that was, I think, nice to see that plants shifted in diversity and, and were starting to bounce back. And at that same time, mammals were starting to come back and achieve larger and larger body size. Um, and then again, we see that uh, another big jump at 700,000 years, where we see the oldest legume or bean pod. And at that exact same interval of time, we see another giant jump in body size, where we see an animal that is like the, about the size of a sm uh, small wolf, maybe. And uh, But just to put this in perspective, this is a hundredfold increase in body size compared to the mammals that survived the mass extinction. And that hundredfold occurred in 700,000 years. And another hundredfold increase in body size won't happen for another 30 million years. So again, it just sort of puts that in perspective. And it, it, and it correlates perfectly with the warming interval and the appearance of these legumes. Legumes are, of course, rich in protein. So we dubbed this the uh, protein bar moment, you know, <laughs> where you know, these... Uh, caloric enriched uh, foods are, are sort of coming onto the scene and without that same interval of time you have larger and larger uh, body mammals. So bean plants came to the rescue. Yes they were rich in protein and they correlate with larger animal sizes. And they were able to figure out the climate from the plant fossils? Yes, the shapes and sizes of the leaves indicate how warm the climate was and also how wet or dry it was. 
It certainly sounds like the fossil records point towards the asteroid impact causing that mass extinction. Yes, it does. It's a remarkable discovery, an impressive body of work. This was a complex puzzle pieced together by a large team working in four research areas, plants, animals, uh, temperature, climate, and geological time. And now we know why paleontologists are calling this the Rosetta Stone for understanding the age of mammals. Yeah, we have the plants, the animals, the temperature, and time. Those four things are allow us to tell this, this amazing story. Without any one of those, we wouldn't, we wouldn't be able to tell this great story. Corral Bluffs fossils are on exhibit at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science, pending the museum's reopening. The exhibit is titled, After the Asteroid Impact, Earth's Comeback Story. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. This week's show was produced by Angel Shang with help from me and Shelley Schlender, and engineered by Maeve Conran. Our executive producer is Joel Parker. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Elvin Woods and Bruneville. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes or follow us on Facebook and Twitter. We'll link to The Nova Show on our website. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Angel Shang. And I'm Beth Bennett.